Once upon a time, near a great forest, lived a poor woodcutter with his two children, Hansel and Gretel, and their stepmother. When things were good, they had little enough to eat. But when famine came to the land, the man could no longer provide their daily bread. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and so this story began as a journey deep into the great forest. Well, most of us have at least a fuzzy idea of the storyline of Hansel and Gretel, and I will tell you it is not like the movie last fall where they're grown-up vampire hunters. I'm not sure where that comes from, actually. What, what it is is a story about two young children who were caught in tough economic times. Their stepmom decided there wasn't enough food in the household to feed four people, so the solution she came up with was to talk their dad into taking them out into the forest the next day and abandoning them so mom and dad could have enough food to satisfy themselves. Fortunately, Hansel overheard them and began to plot a plan of his own and he took breadcrumbs and as they were led out into the forest, he dropped the breadcrumbs behind him with his plan was to, to follow the breadcrumbs back home and foil his stepmom's plan. Unfortunately, the birds were hungry too and ate the breadcrumbs and left... Hansel and Gretel alone, lost, and abandoned in the forest. And so they began searching around for any answer, and they found a path. And as they followed the path in the woods, they saw a, a house covered with frosting and candy, and it looked fabulous. And enticed by the house, they went up and began to eat from it. And what they found themselves is not just enticed, but entrapped by a cannibalistic crone who captures them with the plan on fattening them up and eating them. And so, and, and, and so she puts Hansel in a cage to fatten him up and makes Gretel a servant and feeds him for a while. And eventually she decides that this is the day to do the deed and she heats the oven up as hot as she can eat it. And Gretel manages to pull a switch and shoves her into the oven and she dies in horrible agony. And Han Gretel goes out and releases her brother and they go home where the stepmother is gone and they find a way to live happily ever after with their dad. And I'm not sure I quite figure out that last part after what he did to them. But that's the story of Hansel and Gretel is related to us by Wilhelm and Jacob Grimm in a book called Children's and Household Tales that they published in 1812. Now, he in that book also had uh, Snow White and Cinderella and Rapunzel and I'm trying to sometimes imagine bedtime at his household, you know. <laughs> hey, kids, how about a story? <laughs> Which one do you want to hear? About the evil queen who couldn't stand any competition so tried to kill everybody? Or, 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 or maybe the, the, the evil stepmother who, who enslaved her, 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 her beautiful stepdaughter and wouldn't let him go see the prince? Or, or how about the one where mom was hungry and so she abandoned her children? Now sleep well, have good dreams. What's that? In fact, you, you listen to that and you go, these boys were aptly named Grimm. There's something twisted about them, you think. And yet the fact of the matter is they were uh, scholars, professors, linguists, cultural researchers, and folklorists. And what they did is simply collect tales that had been passed down through the ages and put them in printed form. 
including Hansel and Gretel. That probably actually uh, began to be told around the 1300s during the Great Famine of Europe as people were looking for any kind of solution. And their stories had common themes running through them, although they were each different. There was some kind of massive problem that people had to figure out because life was tough. By the way, have you ever discovered life tough? Anything challenged your life? So we can find identification with that. And then the reality is that in pursuing answers, sometimes we get lost. You know, it occurred to me uh, this week that it's really hard to get lost these days. If Hansel had had his cell phone with him, he could have just punched the button and said, Siri, take me home. No need for cookie crumbs or breadcrumbs there. With MapQuest and Google and Garmin and Siri, it's hard to get physically lost. But it's not so hard to get relationally lost, spiritually lost. It's not so hard to lose your focus in life, to mess up. And in the midst of it, even though sometimes we're running as hard as we can run, we're not getting to satisfaction. We hope for some kind of deliverer. We hope for some kind of answer. We're looking for hope. And that's the story of all of us, even as we think about Hansel and Gretel. Now, Heritage, this is the third sermon in the Once Upon a Time series, and whatever campus you're listening at or whether you're watching online... It occurs to me that some of you are probably thinking, hey, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You're talking about Hansel and Gretel, but isn't this the start of Holy Week? And isn't this the day that we, 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 we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem? Isn't this something different? And the answer is yes, yes, it is. It is the start of Holy Week, and it is the day we celebrate the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you're going, well, there's somebody who's committed to expressing themselves <laughs> always amazes me how one voice can overcome a $200,000 sound system <laughs> but then that kid's all in <laughs> so what are we talking about today you know the people of Jesus day were seeking answers just like we are today and what we'll discover is that we'll learn some lessons from them that we can still apply to our lives today. So I'd like you to turn with me to Scripture, chapter 19 of the book of Luke. Um, you can look at it in uh, your uh, note guide, or you can look on screen, or some of you are going to dial it up on your cell phone, or some of you might even actually use the analog version and uh, actually read it. Now, let me set the story for you a little bit. Um, Jerusalem is a city of about 40,000 people in those days. But on Passover week, which is one of the holy feasts of the Jewish year, uh, the population swelled to about 250,000 people. So, I mean, there were a whole bunch of people crammed into a pretty small space. The excitement of being in Israel, the zeal of, of the people for the Messiah, the dream of the reestablishment of the Jewish kingdom, all of these would have raised the emotional temperature of the city in those days. And Jesus tells his disciples to go find a donkey, in fact, the foal of a donkey, a young donkey, and he climbs aboard to ride it into the city. 
Now let's pick up our reading in verse 36 of Luke 19. And it says, As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, Rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Last night, um, I shared a random thought that always pops into people of my generation when they talk about the stones crying out. And I keep hearing them say, I can't get no satisfaction. And, and I said it last night, and it just bombed. Well, I tried it again at 9 o'clock, and at 9 o'clock, most of the people at the 9 o'clock service are my generation, and they got it. So I thought I'd give it one more shot, and at least you're aware of it. And for those of you who are under the age of 40, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, and never mind, it has nothing to do with the Scripture. (laughs) Nothing at all. It's just a little twist in my brain. The question I want to ask is, what's happening here? Why are the Pharisees so upset and why is Jesus riding this donkey? Because you see from Bethany down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem is usually is a couple of miles and Jesus always, always, always walked it. So why is he not walking it this time? Well, Riding the donkey seems to be a fulfillment of a prophecy given in Zechariah 9.9 that talks about the king, the Messiah, who is righteous and bringing salvation, riding into the city on the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is drawing a broad outline, proclaiming himself Messiah here, and he's letting the people fill it in. The clothes that covered the pathway, it's another signal. A tradition of the day was that people would cover the roadway with their garments or sometimes they would, they would roll out a carpet of some kind so the king's mount wouldn't have to hit its feet on dirty pavement. And Jesus is letting them do this, riding like a king into the city. John tells us in the Gospel of John that they were waving palm branches in a Greco-Roman culture. When the king came riding back into the city after a victory, the symbol of victory were palm branches. And Jesus let it happen. And that shout, blessing on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Why were the Pharisees concerned about this cheer? Well, there was a rabbinical tradition in teaching where they they wanted you to discover the truth instead of just telling you the truth. And so quite often what they would do with their students who were to have had what we know as the Old Testament memorized, they would often quote a verse, not giving the answer by that verse, but having the young students think about the verse just before or the verse just after so they go, oh, that's what you're trying to say. And so these people are are shouting out something from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And and the Pharisees immediately make the connection to the verse just before it and the verses just after it. And the verse just before it talks about the Lord who will save us. Jesus is proclaiming, letting them proclaim his lordship and that salvation is in him. And in the next couple of verses, what the people are shouting out is, you are my God and I will praise you. That's what they're shouting, and that's why the Pharisees are so 
ticked that someone would have the audacity to proclaim himself God and Lord and Savior and Messiah. And when they object, Jesus essentially says, guys, this is so much the plan of God that if I told them to shut up, the stones themselves would cry out. This is the triumphal entry. It's a parade. It's a celebration. It's kind of like a coronation. Jesus knows what's coming, so I doubt that he's doing the queen wave, you know. Um, but, but whatever the equivalent of high fives and fist bumps and chest bumps, I mean, James and John and Andrew and those guys are doing that kind of stuff because after three years of sermonizing and three years of miracle making, things are coming to a grand culmination. The king is here. The Messiah has arrived. Our moment has come. I mean, they are stoked. But an interesting thing happens then. Let's take a time out and look back at Scripture. Last week, Sean showed you this picture. It's taken from the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is not exactly what Jesus saw because the city was destroyed in 73 AD by the Romans. But this is the perspective from which he saw the city and saw the city walls. And the temple would have been much bigger than the dome on the rock. And people would have been flooding in through the city gates. And Jesus, instead of going, it's about all to happen because this is pretty cool and we're going to celebrate, Jesus does something else in verse 41. It says, as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. While everybody is cheering, Jesus is weeping. While everybody is in ecstasy, Jesus seems to be in agony. Now, he knows the cross is coming, but that's not what he's crying about. He's crying because so many people are spiritually blind. If you had only known what would bring you peace, but now you don't see it. I'm the way to peace, but you're headed towards destruction. Now, let's think about this for a few minutes. We ask the question, why were they so blind? Why couldn't they see it? I mean, it seems so obvious to us. And I think one of the reasons is uh, they were blind because he didn't fit their expectations. He didn't fit their expectations. Last week, Patty brought a guy up to me, and he had a cell phone, and he had a selfie there on his phone. And he says, she said, John, look at this. And I'm looking at this picture with this dude, and next to him is a, is a young woman leaning in, smiling. And I'm looking at it going... Why is he showing me a selfie with this woman? And Patty says, it's Heather. For those of you who don't know, Heather's my daughter. <laughs> now, in my defense, he had just shown the picture to her, and she hadn't noticed it either. This guy had been up in Minneapolis, and, and he'd gone to Heather's restaurant. By the way, shameless plug for the lowbrow on Nicolette Avenue. It's, he said it's the best hamburger I ever had. Glad to promo it. He taken a picture with her, but I didn't recognize her at first because I was not expecting her to be in this picture with this random guy. <laughs> and the Pharisees had their own idea of what the Messiah would be like, what he would care about. He would be all about their rules and he would be all about their regulations. That would be all about. And Jesus seemed to care more about people than he did about regulations. And that didn't fit, so they didn't see it. 
And even some of his disciples were all about Jesus coming and establishing an earthly kingdom and they got to sit on his right hand and his left. They were zealots and they didn't see it because he was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. And some people didn't see it because they weren't looking. They were too busy chasing the Israeli dream of success and prosperity and some of them were just trying to survive to make enough today to get by today to get to tomorrow to make it through life. They didn't have time for random rabbis. They didn't have interest in spiritual teaching. They were just chasing the stuff of life and it was spoiling their appetite. Do you remember as a kid when your mom was baking chocolate chip cookies for dessert and they were already done before supper and you wanted to eat one? What did your mom say? You can't have one because it'll spoil your appetite. <laughs> Who cared? <laughs> I mean, if I had to pick, I'll pick the chocolate chip cookie. Thank you very much. I mean, I have a friend who, 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 ru who runs a retirement home, and he says, my motto is eat dessert first. You're never sure what's going to happen. <laughs> Life's uncertain. Well, people... We're not chasing healthy food of life here. It's kind of like they were just chasing anything that would satisfy them for the moment. People were eating the cookies of life, but they weren't aware that the bread of life was right there with them. Their eternal hope was right there. They were following a path towards gingerbread dreams and didn't realize that Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life, was their path towards hope and eternity. And we shake our heads and say, how in the world could they have missed that? But before we get too critical of them, I want to ask you a very important question. What's your spiritual eyesight like? What do you see when you see Jesus? And what do you see as you relate your life to him? You see, the Pharisees were convinced they were following God. They were convinced they were doing things God's way. And yet they missed it when God walked among them. The disciples didn't get it at first. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. And if we're not careful, we can set up our own expectations of Jesus based on who we are. You know, if you go to a men's conference in America, there might be 20,000 people gathered in a stadium, all men, you know, kind of, for Jesus. Jesus is always a macho guy. He would not come riding a donkey. He'd come on a Harley, you know. I mean, that's the, that's the Jesus of men's conferences. You go to a woman's conference, it's gentle Jesus, sweet and mild. Look at baby Jesus. Isn't he so sweet? You know, that would be the women's conference. And I know people who think Jesus is a right-wing radical, and I know people who think Jesus is a left-wing social activist, and it kind of, we kind of shape Jesus in our preferred mold. Instead of saying, who was he and what does he expect of me? We flip it over. Every year, I go to the eye doctor. He shows me a chart something like this. And he never says, what's the first letter? <laughs> I mean, I figure he, he knows that I walked in without doing this. And so, and I drove my car there so he knows I've got the first letter nailed. By the way, you notice it's always E. But he, he then comes down and say, okay, you know, read the green line letters or read the red line letters. And you go, D, F, P, Z, I don't know, or C, I'm not sure. You know, and you, 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 you kind of work your way through it. 
because he always knows about what my vision should be and he goes to where it starts to be fuzzy. And then he drops a lens in and he says, is this better or is this better? And, and is this better or is this better? Is this better or is this better? Until eventually my vision is clarified until it's crystal clear and I walk out of there with a pair of contacts or a pair of glasses where I can actually see. Well, I have some vision clarifying questions for you today that I'd like you to consider as you think about your spiritual vision. And the first question is simply, what are you chasing? What are you chasing in life? What matters to you? If you're not chasing the right things, it will result in a certain level of spiritual fussiness. Jeremiah 29 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. Can you honestly say you are seeking God with all of your heart? Or are there some pockets of reluctance, some places where you're hesitant? If you're not all in, there's going to be a, some fuzziness there. And, and, and some fuzziness leads to more fuzziness because when you don't see him clearly, you then don't often see the decisions you make clearly. So it's important to start in the right place, being all in for Jesus. Second question is, what are you willing to settle for? What are you willing to settle for? First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture said, you must be holy because I'm holy. I've been a pastor for a long time. I was a student pastor for one year at a little farm church in Indiana while Patty was finishing school. I came here in June of 1973. I've been pastoring Heritage Church for about 41 years, and I've watched a lot of people walk the journey. And what I've discovered is we have an amazing willingness to make compromises in our faith journey. There's sometimes that we say, well, I, I know I probably shouldn't, but... I know it's not best, but. I know I probably should do this or make this commitment, but. And I would suggest to you that anytime you start saying, I know I should, but, you're putting yourself at risk because you're settling for something less than God wants for you. We do this because it, we think it will provide us some kind of satisfaction. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin because the temptation promises something that kind of is enticing to us. We get in trouble because with every compromise, we damage our view of God and we hinder our experience of God's best in our lives. We gradually get off the path that he wants. One step, then another, then another. One of the reasons this kind of thing makes sense to us is because we're not necessarily feeding on the right thing. So I asked the third question, what are you feeding yourself? What are you feeding your soul, your mind? First Peter chapter 2 says, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you'll grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Some of us are eating spiritual Oreos and spoiling our taste for Jesus. We spend far too much time and energy and focus on spiritual junk food. I talk to people all the time who just say, you know, I, I know I should read the Bible more, but I'm just so busy. I just don't have time. And 
in those times when the setting is right and when I have the opportunity and we can have a little conversation, I, I ask them a few probing questions. I, I might say, uh, do you watch TV at all? Oh, not much. I say, well, what are your favorite programs? And then there's three or four. More. Watch the news at all? Read the newspaper? Well, yeah. You ever go to movies? Well, yeah. Do you ever read any novels? Yeah. You ever read the newspaper? Uh-huh. And what I discover is that we have lots of time to do stuff like that. We just choose to do it differently. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. I watch television, and I read newspapers, and I, there's a genre of novels that I like, and I go to movies from time to time. I do all of those things, but the problem is when we do them in exclusion to reading that which God has given us, or sometimes the kinds of things we read that are full of ungodly stuff, pollutes our spiritual mind. And if we're filling our minds with those things that are not God and not filling our minds with the things that are God, no wonder our spiritual hunger is muted. Now we're in the final leg of our 21-day crave adventure leading up to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday where, where many of us are, are spending some time fasting from something and praying for God's power to come down on the church on Easter Sunday for lives to be changed. Praying for your friends, praying for Pastor Sean as he teaches next week. If you haven't been joining the journey with us, I challenge you to start today for the next few days through Good Friday to, to fast from something and to pray for your friends to pray for God to, to do something mighty next week in Easter services. Pray for the power of God. Feed on Him this week and see if He might make a difference. Now there's a fourth question, and that is what risks are you creating? Some of us have chosen to live in an environment of risk. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Ignore all sideshow distractions. Watch your step and the road will stretch out smooth before you. Look neither right nor left. Leave evil in the dust. Let me ask you a simple question. Is there anything that God has nudged you about? Said, you know, you really ought to change this. You ought to make this commitment. You ought to obey me here. Is there any place where God has nudged you? And your response has been, it's not that big a deal. If you have any of those places where you have been nudged and you have not responded positively, you are creating a risk environment in your life. I, I'm not trying to create a new kind of legalism, not trying to create a new kind of rules, not trying to be a Pharisee. I'm simply trying to un help you understand that what you do matters. And if God cares enough about you to nudge you and says this would be better for your life, it would be better for your life. And you can increase the spiritual temperature of your life or you can decrease the spiritual temperature of your life by what you pursue in life. You matter to God. You matter so much that Jesus came and he lived and he died for you so you could have life and he's passionate about you. And when his Holy Spirit comes along and nudges you and says, this is how you should live, he does it because he values you and he wants the best for you. And to ignore him creates a risk environment that we should be averse to living in. Now, before we stop, I want to ask one more really important question, and it's about vision. Not yours, but someone else's. Who do you know who's spiritually blind? Who do you know who is still spiritually unresolved? Next week is Easter. 
And we'll have a great celebration at Heritage. I mean, thousands of people will gather in for our Easter celebration. Our campuses all, will, will be filled. Churches all over the Quad Cities will be filled to capacity as the Christian church in the Quad Cities celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest day in history. But I will tell you, there will be more people not in church next weekend in the Quad Cities than will be in church, even though every church will be filled. And I'm convinced that if Jesus were riding into town and stopped on a Mississippi River bluff and looked down over the cities, that he would still weep. That he would still say, if you only you had known what would bring you peace, but now it seems hidden from your eyes. We could change that one person at a time. So who do you know who's spiritually blind? Now, I want to challenge you this week to do three things. First of all, to pray and fast on their behalf for them that they might be open to God's intersection in their life. God does something by prayer and fasting, the Bible says, that don't happen any other way. Secondly, ask a simple question. Just ask this. What are your plans for Easter? You don't have to go into a big testimony. Just ask, what are your plans for Easter? And if they, their plans include going to church, you know, I'm going with mom to church or going to the church I grew up in or I go to whatever, going to mass, you know, great, you know, celebrate with them. But if, if their answer is, you know, we're going to sleep in and then we're going to have an Easter egg hunt for the kids and we're going to overdose them with candy and peeps and they don't ever mention church, what you might do is take the third step and, you know, say, you know, we're having a great celebration at our church. And I'm wondering, on this day when we celebrate Easter, if you'd like to come to church with me. Because that's what it's all about. Some of them will say no. They say, well, okay, thanks. I just, I, I value enough to ask. Some of them will say yes. They'll be a little uncertain. So what you can do is say, you know, I'll be waiting for you in the lobby of the church when you come. I mean, you can pick them up if they want, but you say, I'll be waiting in the lobby and then pick whatever main thing is in the lobby that they could identify at whatever campus you're at. You know, I'll be waiting under the TV set or I'll be waiting by the coffee. I'll be waiting by the donuts. I want to go to that campus, by the way. I'll be waiting there and then just wait for them when they come. Let them know you're glad to see them and bring them in. Uh, get a ticket for them. It's not only because we want to make sure that if you do the hard work of inviting someone, that there'll be a chair here for them. Now I know that feels a little threatening to some of you to actually ask someone to church. But I want to remind you of something that we have been saying again and again and again for 30 years. It's true today as it was 30 years ago, and it's true 30 years ago as it was 2,000 years ago, and that is that lost people matter to God. Lost people desperately matter to God. The heartbeat of heritage is that people are spiritually blind and we can help them clarify their vision of Jesus until it gets to a point where all of a sudden they see Jesus loves me and they respond to him. That's what we have been all about. And we who live in Christ have the opportunity to help spiritually unresolved people begin to see Jesus through lenses of life where then their life is changed. Lost people matter to God. That brings me to the so what moment of this sermon. I've been senior pastor of this church since June 1st, 1973. I sat down the other day and figured out that I have written uh, 
more than 3,200 sermons. And uh, that's a lot. And when you talk, start talking about multiple services and multiple preachings of some of the same sermons, I've stood in front of this congregation to present some kind of teaching more than 6,000 times in 41 years. Well, God's good, isn't he? We used to have a, a worship pastor. In fact, uh, Scott came this morning just to pray with me. The Lord prompted me, showed up. He's pastor of his own church now. He prayed with me. That was meaningful. But he used to ask me, what are you preaching about this weekend? Because he wanted to match the songs at the end of the sermon to, to, the, to the conclusion of the sermon. And Steve does that, and our various pastors do that as we plan our worship services. And he, he'd always ask, what's the, what's the sermon going to be about? And I would tell him, and I would tell him what the application was. And he would match a song to the sermon. And after a while, after a number of years, he, he finally... Uh, quit asking quite as much because he says you end every sermon the same and I was a little confused by that because every sermon had a little bit of different specific application go and do this and go and do this and go and do this and no 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 every sermon has the same basic ending it's trust God enough to obey him in what he tells you to do just trust him enough and then do what he tells you to do, obey him trust and obey trust and obey he says every one of your sermons ends that way and I'll confess to being guilty on that one because I think God is trustworthy he wants the best for us and we need to obey him well I will tell you this is the last full sermon I will preach to this congregation as senior pastor next week Sean preaches the following week he and I share the sermon so this is the last out of 3200 and 6000 and some presentations but as Sean leads us forward He's going to challenge us in ways we've never been challenged. He's going to push you in some places that maybe you've never been pushed. And God will use him and his voice to nudge you forward spiritually. And there will be some moments when there will be something rise up in you as the tempter says, no, 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 that's too risky. I'm not sure that will bring satisfaction. Maybe you should do it your way instead. And as Sean challenges you with a great vision of going forward for God, if you find a place of hesitancy, I'm hoping that just maybe you'll remember the whisper of an old voice when you need to, saying trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Lord Jesus, it's the life we have tried to live it's the message we've proclaimed. It's truth. You are worthy of our greatest trust. You are worthy of our greatest obedience. I pray for these, your people, that we might partner together to continue to go forward for Jesus because as long as there's one person in the Quad Cities who doesn't yet know Jesus, our job's not done. You have blessed us with grace. May, be, may we be people who respond to it in obedience and who give the invitation to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.